This is Chris Halzer, the Nebraska Director of Science for the Nature Conservancy, and you're listening to the Prairie Farm Podcast. When I was, I believe, nine, maybe 10 years old, my uh, cousins and I were spending a lot of time together. They lived just down the road. I had a cousin. Her name's Emily. Shout out to Emily if you're listening to this right now. And we are six months and one day apart. Basically, brother and sister grew up right down the road from each other. And uh, we both have the same memory, but remember it differently. She had, she was part of 4-H and her parents had just gotten her a digital camera. And I'm going to tell the way I remember the memory. I said, hey, can I take a picture? And she said, yeah. And I looked over some cows and I snapped a picture. And then two months later, I hear, hey, did you hear that Emily got a purple ribbon at the state fair from a picture that she took? And I looked. It was my picture. <laughs> now, now, to Emily's credit, she swears she remembers it differently. She swears that she she pointed and said, hey, look at those cows. That would be a really cool picture. You should take that. And I think she says she also took more pictures afterwards of the same thing and might have even used her picture. I don't know. But my brain remembers taking that picture and then seeing it have a purple ribbon with someone else's name on it. Uh, and that was the start of my <laughs> photography career. It's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. It was also uh, coincidentally the end of my photography career. Um, but speaking of photography, we have an incredible gentleman with us today, Mr. Chris Helzer. He is not only a fantastic photographer, but wildly knowledgeable about wild prairie native species whether it's flora or fauna and uh, i followed some of your forums and his answers are very in-depth when people ask questions and uh, we are just honored to have you with us today chris thanks so much yeah happy to be here thank you yeah now chris have you ever had like seen your work pop up elsewhere and somebody else used it like nick had happened there at the state fair you know it's funny i see my photos online all the time but usually appropriately um sometimes people ask to use them sometimes they don't but as long as they're using to as long as they're being used to promote prairie i'm usually pretty happy well that's that's pretty generous of you sounds like you're a nicer guy than nick here but (laughs) (laughs) i just want my purple ribbon man that's all i want yeah where does the purple ribbon live today Oh, uh, probably in a box in her apartment somewhere. Oh, so she still has the ribbon. Well, Man, do, do you enter her... competitions with your pictures? Is that a thing? Or is that just like a middle school thing? You know, I did in college and I got pretty quickly frustrated because it, I mean, any kind of art competition, I, I, I think is really difficult because mm-hmm. once you get to a certain level, people have mastered the technical aspects of photography or painting or art or whatever and mm-hmm. a lot of it, it just becomes like what is the judge like or what do people feel like on that particular day or you know what did you contribute versus somebody else and um i don't know i i also i i'm not a photographer i'm, I'm competitive in a lot of things in my life but photography i don't feel very competitive about because for me i guess photography is more about exploration and so I'm taking pictures of what I'm seeing in the places that I'm going. And then that's important for that reason. And mm. so I've, yeah, I have, I've stayed out of photo competitions, um, for quite a while now. I think I'm happier because of it. Hmm. Yeah. That's, I think that's probably a more pure motivation. You know, it's, you, 
anything you do that you really get into, if there's always that risk when you start looking at it from a competitive way of doing things, you know, it's like, am I really, am I doing this for why I originally fell in love with it and for what I'm really wanting to convey? And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's probably wise to approach it that way, but you know, I don't, you, you definitely could take uh, more than just purple ribbons. I think you get the blue ribbon with a lot of your photos. They're, they're pretty spectacular. I've seen a lot of them as well. But, um, you know, when you're, when you're out in the field with your camera, is, is it usually a targeted, like, you know, you, you, mm -hmm. uh, you know, say, hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to, you know, spend three hours trying to find good content to take pictures of? Or do you just kind of like always have a camera on you and when you're when you're out in the field and you just see something that just, you know, strikes you that you're, you're pulling that up immediately or is a little bit of both? Yeah, it's almost always the second, which is why it's fun. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't do a lot of assignment photography, even if those assignments are coming from me, <laughs> uh, because it's really challenging. And I guess there's two things with that. One, again, for me, photography is more about exploration. And so it's more fun for me to just go out and see what I see. And if I happen to get a photo of it, that's even sure. better. Sure. And I also tend to schedule my photography around light. So I think one of the, one of the things that makes uh, photographers better or maybe photographers who sort of are, you know, good photographers versus like people who take pictures is mm -hmm. that ability to find light and use light in certain ways. And for whatever reason, I cannot draw anything, but I can see light in a certain way. Mm. And so, that is interesting. Yeah. So in the mornings or evenings or on, uh, you know, as a close up macro photographer, um, I, if I see if I look out my window and it's a really overcast but brightly overcast day mm -hmm. with a really nice diffuse light, that's when I'll go out. I'll grab my camera. I'll just go out. And I'll just go to wherever wherever is close or whatever is, uh, you know, convenient for that day and take pictures. And then whatever I find, I find. And then the second piece is when I'm out doing other work. What you said is also important because I always have my camera and mm -hmm. there's been a number of times where I just stumble across something and because I have my camera, I have an opportunity to get a photo that I wouldn't otherwise have gotten. And sure. so that camera bag gets heavy uh, and my <laughs> tripod is a pain to carry. Oh, I bet, I bet. But I'm always grateful when I have it and a sore back is, is uh, pretty easy to take when you, you know, come across a hognose snake doing its, you know, pretending to be dead and rolling around on the ground and you get the photo cause you had your camera. Yeah. Wow. You, you just brought up another point that I think often when I see a page like yours, we have another good friend uh, who's been on the podcast before and just has been, on, you know, a friend for years here of Hoxie and that's Laura Walter up oh, yeah. at uh, a tall grass Prairie center out of the university of Northern Iowa. And uh, she runs a, a uh, Instagram page and she really enjoys photography as well. And I'm always amazed at the knowledge uh, behind species identification that you guys have. Is that something, and I know you're a scientist, that's, that's, that's your, been your role, your life's work really. But 
is that i mean that takes a real concerted effort to to know so i mean just have it right there to be able to identify these species is that something that you know if there ever was a day one although you probably could trace some of this back to even your childhood maybe when you were having these interests show up was it you know We'll, we'll pretend here for sake of example, there's a day one. Did you already show up with just this armory of information on species identification? Or did you find yourself as you were falling in love with prairie and, and the, the critters that live there that you were just, you know, man, I, I got this great picture of this, you know, insect today. I have no idea what it is. Just beautifully colored. I'm going to go find out about what this is and then i'm gonna go find more is it was it more of that learning thing or is it like you're taking your college education out to the field i mean how did you become such a specialist in i in id okay so let me take you behind the curtain (laughs) uh this is the magician telling secrets here um there are some things that i know so i'm pretty good at prairie plants and i do a lot of data collection where I have to know the plant when I see it and I have to know the Latin name. And so, mm-hmm. because I'm recording everything I see in a bunch of different plots across right. the prairie. So with plants, I generally know what I'm looking at with almost everything else. Well, and I'm pretty good with birds uh, and I'm getting better with insects, but really with insects, especially it's mostly the second thing you said, which is I'll take a picture of something and I'll have a kind of a vague idea what it is, or I probably I've seen it before maybe. But in terms of, you know, knowing the name of things, there's just way too many. And oh, yeah. I, so I'll, I'll post it to Bug Guide, uh, which is, you know, bugguide.net, which is an incredible resource. Mm-hmm. Or I'll send it to a friend of mine who I think knows something about spiders or stink bugs or whatever kind of insect it is. Because I'll know maybe generally that kind of category. Uh, and then they'll tell me about it and then I'll do some research and learn, you know, all the fascinating things that you always learn every time you look up an insect. Right, right. And then I'll share that. And and I try to be, I don't know, I, I try to be transparent that I'm not an expert on everything that I'm taking photos of, but people do sort of ascribe this expertise to me. And I know that because then they'll send me a picture and they'll say, hey, what's this insect? I just took a picture of it. It's like, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> You're just well, handing you, it you off know, to someone else. <laughs> you know what? Though? Yeah. So much of it is, and anybody could be like, oh, anybody could, could Google whatever and you know come up with that information. Um, n- not true. Because there's a, there's a thought process and there's a, there's a foundation of scientific knowledge that is required to do effective research, you know, Mm -hmm. to even know what keywords to type in to get somewhere. And uh, I actually, you know, talking about Laura, uh, we were going back and forth through a conversation about these uh, spiders that I found in my house Mm -hmm. this fall. They always show up the same, right around the same 10 days every year, these, these giant wolf spiders. And, uh, couldn't find anything. I went to bug ID. I still need to submit it there. Sorry, Laura, if you're listening, I haven't submitted it yet. But uh, uh, the just very limited amount of research that I could find was pointing to this species that would list Iowa as a, you know like a very eastern, very northeastern edge of known range. You know, like some sources would list it 
in there. Some would not. But to get to that point, I, I actually have, I'm a, a former science teacher. I taught science for, for eight years, high school and, and middle school science teacher. And uh, the, the knowledge to be able to do that research, and I would run into this when I would teach students. You know, you do a research project on some, some animal or something, an endangered species, we'll say. Well, a lot of students, they need to be coached up on just how to look stuff up on that. So don't, don't, uh, don't think that you're, <laughs> you're not, you, you, you don't have that foundation that's required to be able to do what you're doing with the IDs. Cause I, yeah. I, th- I, I think mean, that I, that's and a I skill. Appreciate that. And I, I agree with you to some extent, there is a background knowledge and sort of this, yeah, kind of a general information that you have to have in order to go to, to know what to look for and where to look for it. I right. agree with that, but it's still like, I don't know. I have friends who know a lot about insects who stay who say that you can't really call anybody an entomologist um, because no one has that breadth of knowledge. There mm. are bee specialists and there are ant experts and there are people who know a lot about grasshoppers. And then all of those, just because they're in the field and they're talking to people and seeing things, they'll recognize some of the other groups and some species in the other groups. And they might know how to know whether it's a katydid or a grasshopper, for example. Right. Mm. But nobody's going to know all the species for all those yeah, it's, things. It's, it's impossible. It's not possible. Right. And I think that's where I am with prairies in general, where, you know, even among plants, I'm not, I don't know all the plants. I know most of the plants on my site because I mm-hmm. see them. And if I go somewhere else, I might know 75% or 80% of what I'm seeing. And if I go further away, it's more like 50%, you know. Um, but I do think because I write about what I see, um, people just assume that I know about what I'm writing about and everything else. And it's like, no, I'm telling you the things that I know because that's the only thing I can, I can't write about the things I don't know. Right. So when I learn something, I'll share it with you. But I use my own blog as a resource all the time because I remember like, Oh, I've seen something like this before. I bet I wrote about it and I'll look it up. It's like, ah, there it is. I found something that I wrote about three, 10 years ago, you know? Yeah. Um, so I yeah, I, there's no way I can retain all that stuff. Oh yeah, but what I think Sherlock Holmes says, and 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 one of the books Sherlock Holmes says, um, you don't need to know anything if you have a thesaurus. I think that's Sherlock Holmes. I, I'm going back to like middle school trying to remember this, but you know his point was like, why why would you need to know anything if you just have the information held somewhere else? And uh, uh, we are in, and I mean this is just an interesting topic, the whole information age. Where it's Wait, all the source or encyclopedia? I think you mean encyclopedia. Oh, encyclopedia. Thank you. <laughs> we could use a thesaurus to find yeah. another, uh, thesaurus another is name. Thesaurus is not a synonym for encyclopedia. I don't know <laughs> I where that brain part that came one. from. Yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. Wow. Thank goodness Kent came along. Man, usually Kent has these like brain farts. Wonders. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's what that feels like. Yes. That's, that's a fun time. <laughs> See, I thought, I thought what you were saying was you don't need to know it if you have the source. Oh, okay. source material, which also makes sense. I, I was like, yeah, I'll just go with that. That sounds good, <laughs> man. Wow. Maybe that is that's just say. So Maybe I should it. just quote that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's what yeah, I was no, That's from me. I that's, don't know what's wrong with kids. Oh, my hearing loss yeah. from uh, working on equipment. <laughs> no. But, so you, you've alluded kind of to this other thing you do that's not photography, and we know that it's work with Prairie. What, what do you do with Prairie? Well, I do a lot. Um, it's most of my life. It's, uh, I, I'm the director of science for Nebraska, which means that I am in charge of doing research 
and evaluating our land management and restoration practices for the Nature Conservancy here in Nebraska. So I do a lot of data collection. I do a lot of, you know, meeting with our our land managers and the land managers for other organizations and talking about what we know, what we learned, um, how can we adapt what we're trying to do, sort of just being an advisor to land management. And then about the other half or maybe more than half of my job these days is is more the communications side. Hmm. So interpreting some of what we're hmm. learning to different audiences or a lot of times just trying to talk to people about grasslands uh, and get them to either you know pay attention to them or care about them in some way. Uh, working with this sort of underdog ecosystem that we're talking about. Yeah. So that's that's how my my job is split into those two pieces, which is great because I started my my career as a land manager, and that's still sort of the core of what I enjoy about prairies. This idea of you know doing a management practice, tweaking something out there on the landscape, watching how the land responds. And then learning from that and then taking the next step and trying something different and trying to guide, you know, an ecosystem in a certain direction. That's that's what keeps my motor running. And so as long as I'm connected to the land and connected to that kind of management, I'm happy. Mm. Uh, and then photography and, and writing has sort of grown over time because I found that uh, I also like sharing what I learn and learning from other and starting these big conversations to make sure that everybody's connected together better. Because yeah. there just aren't there aren't that many of us that are managing prairies, especially from the biodiversity standpoint. Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, I wrote a book at one point on prairie management, and very quickly realized that a you write a book and it takes forever between the writing and the publication to come out. During which time you learn lots of new things that you can't put in the book, <laughs> which is frustrating. Yeah, and then yes. you put the book out and it just sits there quietly, and there's no feedback. And that's that's why I started a blog. Having never read blogs before, I started a blog because I needed to have some kind of discussion going on, and it's yeah. led to all kinds of things that have been really terrific since then. Wow, Did, yeah. how has the reception been for your job in terms of the communication side of you, uh, with what you are communicating and whom you're communicating it to? Well, that's interesting. It, it changes based on audience. Uh, you know. There are a lot of people who appreciate nature but don't really think about prairies in their day-to-day life because if they think about nature, they think about trees or lakes or streams or something like that. And so I've had really good reception from people like that who are like, gee, I never thought that you know prairies were all that interesting and you've really shown me that there's something out there for me to go see. I'm going to go spend more time there. And that's incredibly gratifying when I hear that. Um. And I would say that there are people like ranchers and farmers who think about grasslands and and make their living off of grasslands, but maybe don't see the full picture of grasslands because they're looking at them through a certain lens. And so the same thing, I can sort of help them expand their view of what prairies look like and what's what are what's out there, and also bring in the science side of that and talk about you know, here are some things to think about as you, you know, plan out your grazing system for next year or whatever that'll help you accomplish what you want to accomplish, but also help all these other species or, you know, help build the resilience of this overall system or something like that. And usually that reception is at least polite Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes really good. good. But, you know, there are certainly people who are um, just see the world differently, I guess. And 
we can have some really good discussions. But I would say, especially with with the blog, for example, I mean, I've been doing it for a little over 12 years now. I think I've had to block two people in 12 years, which for an online discussion forum, that's pretty that's terrific. Pretty good. Um, and even the people that I blocked, it was like, it wasn't awful. Um, and the vast majority of discussions have been really polite and constructive and, you know, people disagree with each other. People disagree with me. That's great. We go back and forth. We try to understand where we're coming from. Mm. Uh, so I, I've been very fortunate to have that kind of forum where we can have really good constructive dialogue. Uh, you know, when I saw that you were doing your work in Nebraska, um, that that was interesting to me, I, not just because you're our neighbor to the west there, but uh, Iowa and Nebraska are similar in the sense that the work, the conservation work, to really see a, a change on the landscape that's to a scale where we're starting to significantly help water quality throughout the state, significantly helping uh, uh, curb climate change significantly uh bringing back enough habitat that has to largely happen on private acres um i believe if i remember correctly i think iowa ranks uh at 48th for public land uh in the united states and i think nebraska's 49 maybe um, I wouldn't be surprised. That so, sounds right. So, somewhere right around that. So if you, you know, I think a lot of times people work under this or, or not work. They think that a lot of this work, you know, guys like you are doing it on. Thank goodness we have those county and government acres that uh, Chris can go and and uh, fix for us. But even if you had every square inch of that taken care of, it still would be three like literally three percent of the you are the land. really close kent so iowa is 47th with 2.8 percent public land and i wonder how much of that is water um yeah. and then nebraska is 48th at 2.8 percent so uh, i guess they're they're basically tied, tied. yeah identical it's a rounding error between us yeah yeah, yeah. wild and, and here's 50th which kind of makes 47 and 48 sound worse rhode island you know so we're talking about i think we have i think we have some uh cow pastures in our states that are bigger than rhode island so <laughs> there's there's uh <laughs> hey if you're listening from rhode island we still love your yes, state yes we do it's just small it's an awesome state <laughs> but um yeah we're we're way down there so how much of your this kind of plays off nick's question there about receptiveness to the message of hey we need more prairie how much much of your job is public relations to the private landowner? Yeah, a ton. And it's, you know, the work that we do on, on our own land with the Nature Conservancy, we have, you know, in Nebraska, something like, I'm going to get the number wrong, let's say 80,000 acres, right? Which is a lot of land. 80,000 acres is a lot of land. And 56,000 acres is that, of that is in one place at the Niobrara Valley Preserve, the Platte River Prairies, where I was a land manager, you know, were between three and four thousand. There's some big chunks out there, but it's really insignificant in terms of conservation if that's the only land, to your point, that that is managed in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's two things there. One, 
I do a lot of talking to people who have sort of a, a biased opinion on agriculture as a negative thing because they have a certain set of people that they're talking to and, and what they hear about are the negatives of agriculture. Um, and then I talk to another set of people who are in agriculture and think that conservation or environmentalists are a certain thing, right? Because mm-hmm. they hear they have yep. a certain people they're talking. I feel like I'm this sort of in between them. I'm this bridge between them a lot of times. And I, and I think in a, in a helpful way, because there really is so much more common ground than not in that, mm-hmm. in those discussions. And, you know, I work with a lot of ranchers and when I talk to ranchers, it's almost universally true. I think that those conservation, the, those ranchers have a strong conservation ethic. They're there because they love where they are. They want to do the right things for the land. They still have to make a living off of it. Yeah. But a lot of my role is not convincing them to do good things. It's helping to sort of broaden their understanding of what, for example, habitat looks like. Right. I think a lot of ranchers think about habitat in terms of something that if I if I graze this a little less than I normally would and leave extra grass out there, that's habitat. Right. Right. And, and my my job a lot of times is saying, well, that is habitat. But here's here's another kind of habitat where you graze it even harder than you might right now uh, and then let it rest for a few years. Mm-hmm. That rest period, the recovery time and even the int- intensive grazing, those are also providing some really cool habitat values. And here are the kinds of species that use them and. So it's, yeah, so, so to answer your question, yes, I spend a lot of time with them. I also spend a ton of time with sort of the in-betweens between me and ranchers, so private lands biologists, people who work for Pheasants Forever or NRCS or University Extension or, you know, county weed superintendents, because if we can talk to them and have, you know, have them, uh, you know, come to a landowner with a bunch of new information or different kinds of information or a wider set of information, they're going to be better able to work with those landowners directly. And I might work with, uh, you know, 20 or 30 landowners in a year, but each of those is each of those people is working with 20, or 30 landowners a year. So if right. I work with 20 or 30 of those private lands biologists, all of a sudden I'm reaching way more people. Yeah. So for us, that's actually a really important audience is to share what we're learning in our experimentation, because we can do crazy things on the conservancy land that a farmer or rancher wouldn't necessarily be able to do and take take chances that other people can't. And sometimes it works spectacularly and sometimes it fails spectacularly, but we can at least share what we've learned and then other people can share that with a wider range of, of ranchers or farmers. Hmm. Yeah. We had um, a conversation with Ted Cook, the president of American Grouse Association. North American Grouse North Partnership. Partnership. I need okay. to get that straight, but I, they, he was heavily pressing that it needed to make sense for private landowners. We needed to find a way to make it make sense for them, right? Because people own this land, and and yeah. uh, and we don't want them to just, we don't want to force them to use it a specific way that would totally be uh, a disadvantage, a disadvantageous to them. Well, well, the I think one of the most helpful catchphrases, which Catchphrases are not always helpful, <laughs> but one that the NRCS came out with, I, th- I, th- I think that's where it originated with, is farm the best, conserve the rest. Or sometimes you'll hear people say CRP the rest or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really speaks to that exact thing that Nicholas is talking about here, where um, we need these people. I mean, for instance, I'll just give you a, a little 
story that I just found out about a few weeks ago that directly impacts my everyday life. The land, so I live on a, on the family farm that's been, we'll hit the century mark here in I think five years. Uh, so been in the family for all intents and purposes, 100 years. Well, about 10 years ago, a neighbor across the road, just directly out in front of my house, um, the, the, the family sold off a large piece of land and there was all this drama behind it. It was supposed to, there was supposed to be this large auction and the auction had been announced and everything. And, uh, the owner was approached by a neighbor who really wanted to expand their farming operation. And, um, uh, he offered her a price that was like, well, you know, that's above the reserve that we were going to set or whatever at the auction. And, uh, she sold like a day before the auction or something like that to, to this neighbor. And, and, you know, of course some people were ticked off by this, but the, the, uh, the neighbor who happened to be a relative of the selling family member explained to me, he said, you know, there was a good chance that all that ground right in front of your house was going to turn into some huge hog confinements. And, uh, you know, a nice North breeze every day would have, uh, curled your, curled your hair pretty good. And uh, instead, it was, you know, a guy who's into row crop bought it. And th- through him just owning that land, he has protected it, hopefully, for generations, you know, from being something that has a much heavier impact on the land, much heavier impact on the people living around there. And so farmers can absolutely play a critical role in the condition of that ground not just in when they're using it and growing crops, but just by owning it, that, that that's protection. Other things you see happen are a housing development pops up in what was once farm ground. Farm ground can be easily converted back into prairie. If you have a, a, a landowner at some point that, you know, catches the, the vision and sees the importance Houses cannot be converted into prairie very easily. Blacktop and concrete cannot very easily be converted back into prairie. So there's that side of it. But also, then, if these people are going to, if if they're going to be protecting this asset, maybe not for the here and now that it gets to be prairie, but maybe 50 years from now and our kids get to enjoy having more prairie on the landscape or our grandkids or nieces and nephews, whoever, right? That them just owning it and farming it protects that but if they're going to be able to do that they got to be able to make money off of it too you know and we know there's the crp uh an awesome thing that ted cook which is just a an awesome conversation if you're listening to this and you haven't heard that episode i can't remember what number that is um but go in there ted had some just great ideas suggestions for how we could you know accomplish both get the landowner paid but also focus on conserving some of those acres. Saving the lesser prairie chicken. That's right. what it's called. Right. So go so go back, look at that episode with, with Ted. But another thing you talked about were carbon credits, you know, give, you know, establishing some carbon credit value for these landowners. And we but these people got to be able to make money because they got property taxes. They have they have uh, other expenses. They got to pay for insurance, things like that. And so if if they're not able to make money, then they can't own it. If they can't own it, then who does get to own it? Um, we're seeing, you know, another interesting phenomenon going on right now where we have one person 
who is by far the largest landowner in the United States. Well, hopefully when, you know, you have those situations where you have a handful of people that own a certain percentage of private land, well, let's hope that they have (laughs) intentions that are conservation-minded, right? And so the more money that farmers can have in that regard, uh, the more protected the land stays in a sense. So I think that that is a part that gets missed. And and I can be guilty of it too. You know, just it's easy to to focus on the negatives of, you know, nitrate buildup in our, in our water, uh, loss of topsoil to, to water erosion, um, all kinds of other issues, amount of, of fossil fuel burned carbon, you know, released from bare soil and all that, that goes into, yes, the, the, downside of conventional agriculture practices in a lot of ways but but there's also a lot of good that comes from having this farming situation and so i think that 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 message is important that nick is bringing up there sorry i was very long winded. no you're good man do you need you want a snickers sound a little diva-ish right now <laughs> no well, no so, it's good let me let me bounce off of that a little bit because i think uh you know, a lot of the, the the reason most of the prairie that has survived to this point has survived is that people can make a living off of it, mm. so they don't have to convert it to something else, right? Yeah. Which I think is a really key point to bring yeah. up. And so, keeping that land profitable is an incredibly valuable uh, strategy for all of us because, you know, in terms of carbon, like the best the best carbon strategy we have is to not plow up what we haven't plowed up yet right mm-hmm. we can talk all kinds of there's all kinds of things you can do on land that has been cultivated and, and we should do that but the land that hasn't been cultivated is where we store the most carbon and there's no question yeah. that that yep. strategy is the best let's just hold on to that right um but i also think there's in terms of conservation practices whether you're talking about farmland or or ranch land there's a lot that can be done that's very compatible with profit with making Mm -hmm. good money right and that like there's no reason not to do it from a financial standpoint the the discussion we're having a lot of times is more cultural because is it something that your family's used to doing or the neighbors are going to laugh at you about or whatever right that's a whole separate conversation and it's a difficult one sometimes um but there's there's a lot of things that are compatible. And then I think the other interesting part of the conversation are or is like and I'll use I'll use prairie dogs as an example in Nebraska. Prairie dogs are really cool. They're a really neat ecological species. Oh yeah. Wide yeah. habitat for lots of other things. They also are eating the same food that cows are eating. Right. Yeah. And you can make some you can make some really good points that they're improving forage quality uh, in the places they have, but they also reduce forage quantity. Mm-hmm. So an interesting discussion that we don't have often enough is if we want more prairie dog acres out there and it's not something that's compatible uh, as easily with with production or with with profit, what as a society do we do to reach an agreement with landowners to get more prairie dogs out there? Right. Mm, yeah. So. The point is that sometimes conservation and production are easily compatible, and in some cases they're not as compatible, but there's still ways that we could have that conversation yeah. and reward yeah. landowners for doing something good for conservation. And it's it's frustrating, I think, to me that we miss a lot of those opportunities because we 
dispel this as a black and white. It's either conserved land or it's ag land. And yeah. that's the actual, that's the only disagreement I'll have you with the, the farm, the rest can, or farm, the best conserve the rest is that I don't think it's a black and white thing. There are places, mm. there's mm. lots we can do with farmland. That's also conservation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's prairie strips or conservation tillage or, you know, like you said, nitrate management, water management, all these sorts of things. But in general, I'm agreeing with with you, I guess. And I'll, I'll, I'll end my soapbox with this, which is. I think in conservation, we've made the mistake of using the term protection mm. to equal, uh, you know, ownership by a public entity. So a lot of times when you hear people talk about land that's been protected, what it, what they mean is it's owned by a state agency or mm-hmm. the federal agency or whatever is managing it. And I take great ex- exception to that because I would use the example of the Nebraska Sandhills Um where we have, you know, 12 or 13 million acres of grassland, mostly contiguous grassland, that's in incredible shape. And the vast majority of that is owned by ranchers. Mm -hmm. And I would say it's protected because there's a culture in place that is protecting that resource. And so trying to define that level of protection or that style of protection is really important for two reasons. One, because it it sort of gives credit to the people who are on the land doing that protection and keeping that land in good shape, which is important. But it also, I think, if we can define what that is and what that means, then we can look for sort of tipping points or, uh, you know, indicators of, of risk or something that's going to change that culture and move it in a different direction. And you mentioned the, you know, big landowners and, and the risks that are involved with that, because if they change their mind or they move in a certain direction, a whole bunch of land goes with it. I think the same mm-hmm. thing is true as a, as a culture or these these landscapes where people are doing things relatively similar to each other because they built up that that culture and that, you know, that learning and experience that they share with each other. And that'll go for a long time, but it also can change. And so that's where I think if we have some way of monitoring that, we can say, oh boy, the grazing practices are really starting to change in this landscape over here. The farming practices are starting to change in a certain way. What's causing that? What can we do about it? How do we sort of bring it back into this culture that was more supportive of conservation and longevity? Mm. Yeah, I like that. What, what, so if we've been talking about change a little bit, or at least alluding to it, if you could snap your fingers and maybe one, maybe two or three things were changed <laughs> in an instant. Yep. What would what would those be? You know, one big one is has to do with restoration. So, you know, you mentioned the that we can take cropland and put it back to prairie, and that's true. Um, it's it's a different prairie, but it's still a really good thing to do, and it can be useful. The most time, the most useful that work can be is when you have a piece of prairie that's small and isolated and you can do some restoration work around the edges of it to make it larger or even better to connect it to other pieces of prairie, right? Mm-hmm. That's an incredibly valuable strategy. And when and we know it works because we've tested it. I've, I've done a lot of my own data collection on this at our sites in Nebraska where we can show bees and grasshoppers and small mammals and all these things moving from their little remnant isolated patch out into that new restored habitat. It's like, yeah, this is working. It's connecting these back together. It's making them bigger. But what we don't do very well society-wise right now is we're not very targeted about where we do restoration work, including things like the CRP program, right? Mm. The CRP program generally 
is funded, a project is generally funded because somebody comes into the office and says, hey, I have this piece of land, I want to see if I can enroll it. And then there's a decision that's made, yes or no. What we don't do very well as a society, and this is not a criticism of any, of any agency, because it's just conservation groups in general haven't made this happen. We don't go out in the landscape and look at opportunities where we say, oh, boy, these, these, there's these two little patches of prairie over here, and there's a gap in between them. If we could fill that gap, wouldn't that be amazing? Let's go talk to that landowner and just see if there's anything there yeah. we could figure out together. Right? That's a good point. Because maybe that landowner would say, there's no chance. I need this for these reasons. And we say, okay, that's great. We had the conversation. But maybe the landowner would say, well, if I could just have this, or if we could come out, come to some agreement that would allow me to do this or have this or get this amount of money or whatever, we can make it work. Then we can make that decision be really strategic. And for yeah. whatever reason, we just our conservation programs for landowners are not set up very well that way, which mm -hmm. is frustrating to me. So if I could snap my fingers, that would be one thing that I would that I would sure change. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great point. And I think, you know, it falls victim to what most things do when we create a policy on something, which essentially is what CRP is. Uh, it's a it's a part of a piece of legislation, the, the farm bill an yeah. allotment out of that. It gets watered down to something that doesn't fully hit the intention behind the rule so to speak you know it's uh uh kind of like you, you tell a kid at school don't stick gum under the table okay i'll stick it inside my locker you know it's like, oh well i guess i don't have gum under my lunch under the lunch table anymore but now i got to clean it out of the locker the 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 rule is followed but the intention is lost and uh i think that that can happen although i do think that farm bill biologists and and uh people working at the uh fsa offices and so forth they they try to make sure everyone's following the rules as best as reasonable and you gotta be careful with that too you know because if you're if you're a real stickler on that to landowners then they're just it really become a bee in the in, in their bonnet you're <laughs> they're not going to want to enroll anymore just for the hassle of getting yeah. hollered at for having too many trees growing in their CRP or, or whatever. Yeah. But, there's gotta be flexibility, but right. Exactly. But I also think that again, this is not a criticism of anybody in any place, any place. I just think there's a gap there where there are a lot of different organizations who could make the choice to step up and say, we're just going to go talk to these landowners. Like we don't, you don't have to be involved in FSA to go have a conversation with a landowner in a strategic place mm -hmm. and say, Hey, I don't know if you know about this particular program. Would you be interested? If so, I can connect you to the people who are interested. Yeah. I mean, there's just there's just a role there that's not being filled by anybody at the moment, for the most part. Right. And then, and similarly, and and again, it's it's a lot of about like you said, how those programs are built and how they're funded, which is the other piece, right? Mm -hmm. There's often not a lot of funding provided for the follow up on a project. Mm, yeah. So people are signing up landowners for projects and helping them get a project underway. But then they move on to the next project because that's the way the funding is set up. And there's not often a system where people then go back to that landowner two years, five years, ten years later and say, hey, how's it going? You know, I, I just let's let's go look at it together. Maybe there's something we can talk about. We can find another program to help you with the next step here. Or, you know, geez, there are trees coming into your CRP. Mm -hmm. Maybe we catch that early. Here's some ways to do that that won't cost you a lot of money. I mean, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. That follow-up is really missing a lot of times. So For if, I get two finger, if I get two finger snaps, that might be my second one. Yeah, That's yeah. a good one. 
Well, and I think there are actionable items that, you know, every now and then I hear somebody say, how can we improve CRP? And I think there's even some, uh, I might be, I might be mixing something up here. That, uh, so I got to be careful. This could be another blunder, Nick. But I think I did hear that there's possibly some proposed legislation here recently on so, somehow improving uh, CRP, the, C, the CRP program, uh, the way it's done. Uh, but I might be wrong on that. I just think I heard about that within the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. But um, those are some actionable, actionable items regardless. Even if that legislation hasn't been proposed or brought up, um, it probably should. And I love that idea of creating these more, I think the right word here is contiguous tracks of of prairie and uh that brings me uh to another thing that i think i heard once that and you and you seems like you're really focusing on these remnant stretches of prairie that we have obviously those are those are a true relic of the landscape a a a jewel uh to to come across those and then to obviously uh keep them around um but let's say let's go with the model of we take a cornfield and uh we turn a 200 acre cornfield you know a nice big piece of ground and and the landowner buys in crp program changes so that it becomes really i think what you're describing a more relational process where this this biologist is working with the land specialist is working with the landowner to say not just hey this is how crp works these are the laws we're going to help make sure that you uh follow the rules so you can get your check but instead say hey you know this is why this is important this is uh what you know hopefully you will see as being important so that now you have this educated person who sees the intrinsic value there but let's say we get to that point how long does it take for this landowner, this this new soldier of conservation, we'll say, um, how long does it take for their ground to really become the quality piece of prairie that that remnant piece is? Or is that even, in your opinion, is that even possible now with all the you know non-native species that have been introduced to the landscape, the, the extirpation of others and extinction of others? Um, so, what do you it's, think? It, it's a really good question. And, but I also think it's, it's some ways it's the wrong question and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, Here's because my blunder, Nick. <laughs> I, I think, uh, so I'll, I'll answer your question first and then I'll explain why, why I said what I said. Um, the habitat value above ground. So for things like, you know, pheasants or, quail or meadowlarks or grasshoppers or small mammals or pollinators Mm -hmm. that that piece of cropland can be prairie habitat very quickly you know within a few years Mm -hmm. it's going to provide pretty much everything those kinds of species need so that's a really quick conversion the below ground stuff doesn't happen quickly at all right Right. your soil organic matter levels don't change very much at all. That's a very tiny little incremental change over a lot of years. But if you look at it in that way, then you just say, well, that restored land is always going to be kind of a failure because it provides some things, but it never gets to where that remnant is, right? We're comparing right. against that remnant. 
So the way I would prefer to look at it is more like instead of if you think about trying to restore land to get it back to what it used to be or to get it so it looks like this thing over here, that's that's sort of this idea of like a, it's almost like restoring a historic building mm-hmm. where you have a defined endpoint and you're trying to make it look exactly like it used to. And that's just it's really difficult ecologically to do that. I think what makes a lot more sense in terms of what we're aiming for is more like restoration work in a city after a hurricane, after a a major disaster, because there the point is not to make it look like it used to. The point is Mm. to get it to work again, right, to restore function. So in a case like that, you're worried about reestablishing transportation and communication and food resources and all these sorts of things. The appearance of it, it, whether it works or looks the same way, it doesn't matter. It just needs to work, right? And so restoration, I think, when it's really successful, is restoration that is used as connective tissue between little patches of habitat that are already there, again, to make them functional as, as, as larger, more connected pieces. And when you do it in that context, then your evaluation changes. Because now what you're evaluating is not, is this restored prairie the same as the remnant prairie? The value of that prairie is measured on, does it do the job of making this u- this larger unit act more effectively as viable habitat like for species that. or yeah. all those other things, right? That's And so that's a much, it's a much better bar and a much easier bar to reach. And it doesn't make us judge these things as failures because the soil's different, right? right? Now they're complementary rather than trying to be replicates. Yeah, yeah, almost viewing that that new prairie as a bridge within yeah. that work. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, like because that. a lot of times that new prairie will have things that the other prairie, the, the original prairie doesn't have. Right. Yeah, We've actually true. seen that with, with some regal fritillary butterfly habitat where regal fritillaries are these prairie butterflies that rely on violets as caterpillars, but they go out and, you know, feed as adults on all kinds of different flowers. And on some of our sites, what we've seen is that the, the butterflies will start out in our remnant prairies where there's a lot of violets and they hatch out there. But as soon as they're big and they're starting to be flying around and they've, they, they'll mate real quick and then they'll move from those remnant prairies out into our restored prairies that have better summer flower abundance mm-hmm. are providing something that some of the remnants don't have as much in this particular location. And so it's like, we're better off with these copies over here that don't look like the original because right. they're providing something a little bit different and more complementary, and they just act to, to make the whole big piece work better. Yeah, wow. and we, we've even seen that with other critters, you know. the uh, Probably the best example, the best two examples of that would be uh, um, the white-tailed deer and um, uh, coyotes, American coyote. Uh, just they have thrived on this modified landscape. They're... I believe I've heard, uh, you can fact check me on this one too, Nick, uh, but I believe the population of white-tailed deer now is greater than when uh, Columbus set foot. Oh, like by 20 times, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's uh, insane how that, how that is, how they have thrived under that. And so it's a good example there with those butterflies that, you know, there's something about that new prairie that just serves you know, almost like expands their niche a little bit uh, within the the prairie ecosystem. It just really uh, uh, makes that you know expounded upon. So that's that's a that's a, that's a great way of explaining that. I'm glad uh, I'm glad you uh, reworked my question for me there, Chris. <laughs> that was, 
That was, well, that was good. I'll go back and edit it, make you sound like a genius. Kid. There we go. Yeah. I like that. Thank you. I mean, part of it is it's it's like the scale of, of where we evaluate matters. So rather than evaluating the piece, we should evaluate the larger system that that piece fits into because mm-hmm. it's the system that really matters. Yeah, yeah. I got this picture in my head of uh, uh, when the, the Notre Dame uh, Cathedral was burning, what, five, six years ago now mm-hmm. or something like that. And the whole time you're watching that, you're just like, man, what a beautiful and historic building, even if they fixed it all. It's all new lumber. It's all, you almost got to have that mindset of we're not rebuilding that. We're, we're making the best with what we can. And you look at that functionality versus, uh, I guess, reality or whatever the right yeah. term is there. But And well, before, before we got here, the prairie wasn't stagnant. It was still evolving. Yeah. Right? Yeah. My, my wife always, she always... Uh, and I, I don't necessarily agree with her because I work opposite of this viewpoint. But she said, wouldn't everything that humans do be natural? Because we were born and created and on this earth and we are part of nature and what we do ends up being natural. I was like, ah, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> but hey, just, can, I, can I cape for your wife here real quick then? Yeah. yeah because yeah. I would argue that in prairies, if you look at the prairies in North America today, Mm-hmm. They've been around since the last ice age receded, right? Which was yep. ten to twelve thousand years ago, depending on where you're at. Yep. During the entire time that those prairies have existed in North America, people have been managing them. And so, you can't have a prairie separate from people because there wow. never has been one in modern history, right? Modern wow. history being the time that these prairies we have today have existed. Yeah. They've always been managed by people. People have been setting fires which attracts grazers which really dramatically changes their structure Mm -hmm. they've been cultivating plants and moving them around the landscape and and intentionally managing prairies for different objectives and so what we're doing today is like we're the latest link in this long chain of of land stewards that have been taking care of prairies for you know 10 or twelve thousand years yeah. And so it, it does get tricky when you talk about what's natural and how what role humans play in it, because yeah. I would argue with it with prairies. In a lot of places like Iowa, for example, I don't know that you would have prairies if it hadn't been for people, because it was the fire, especially by those people that made those turn into prairies and not turn into oak woodlands. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wondered because, I mean, if you think about CRP so quickly, can it fill with trees? Now, granted, it's like locusts and, you know, pretty terrible trees. But I wonder, like, how did they keep trees out of basically all of Iowa, you know, for uh, for thousands of years? But I guess you were saying that it it was people burning or at least lightning burning. If, if that was else. well, and that's the thing. I think the research shows that that burning by people in most places uh, was much more important than lightning fires. There were more of them and there and it was more at, the, at a better scale and more effective at, at keeping trees out. And then once you once you have a landscape that has few trees on it, it's easier to keep more trees from coming in. What makes our challenge really big right. today is that we're surrounded by trees in every direction. And so the seed fall and the invasion is like coming from every direction. You can't win that fight anymore be, just with fire. We have to be more aggressive than that. What do conversations um, for you, how do they go about invasive species? I, I just today I talked to a lady that they wanted to put in a lot of, um, pompous grass. Uh, yeah. uh, what's, I don't, 
Maniculus, is that what that's called? Oh, Miscanthus. Miscanthus, thank you. Miscanthus grass. <clears throat> and and I told her, hey, we don't actually do that, and we highly recommend you not do it. And here are some other alternatives. But what have conversations been with you about invasives or seeing them in? Or... It's, it's really challenging. I mean, the safe route, of course, is you go with something that's native to that area because you know that there's a system in place to help control it and keep it, uh, you know, make it act as a nice, polite member of the community. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it also gets really tough as land managers. We were surrounded by these other species that are coming in all the time and you're trying to decide which ones are the really big ones to worry about, mm-hmm. which ones do we just live with? Because things like dandelions, for example, like there's no reason to fight dandelions in a prairie. Right. Uh, And our restored prairies have a lot of dandelions that actually provide some decent pollinator habitat early in the spring when resources are low. It's like, okay, we'll live with that one. But you don't always know at the beginning of an invasion whether it's going to get bad or not. So if you can can eliminate something as it's coming in before it has a chance to prove itself as bad, that's awesome. But it's also really important to prioritize. And so, yeah, I would much rather... um, you know, worry about something like leafy spurge, for example, mm-hmm. than would uh, something like goat's beard, which is not native, but like, nah, not really hurting anything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, invasives, as, as land managers, invasive species take up more time than just about anything else we do. And mm. so anything that you guys or anybody else can do to stop, you know, the planting of these, these invasive species anywhere near our sites would be hugely appreciated oh man well it's interesting that nick brought that up because there's a flip side of that coin too and and this is kind of the hope as you bring more prairie back to the landscape that you know we view that from a plant standpoint mostly and then i would say after the plants we start thinking about the bugs uh, specifically pollinators but there's so much more than that. There's the birds. There's the, of course, the mammals, and uh, really the, uh, the I guess we could say the megafauna of the of the prairie, yep. um, bison, uh, elk, and uh, we already talked about whitetails and all these large mammals. But it's specifically the bison and the elk, which have been absent are uh, an important player within uh, prairie ecosystems as well. And Nebraska uh, made a lot of news this summer for an issue uh, right along these lines. Um, uh, Elk have been, I believe, mostly just naturally kind of uh, repopulating the state. Of course, they're native there to to, uh, Nebraska. But... um, They've they've been uh, making their way back into the state and in numbers or quantities that are great enough to where um, their presence is not very welcome in some areas. And so they had a uh, 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 July, I think it was July, yeah, July hunt that went on uh, to try and uh, uh, drop those numbers. But um, hmm. what, I mean... What's your take on that with, I mean, how do we get to that next step? Is that next step still 100 years from now just because um, we, we don't have near the habitat, for instance, here in Iowa, to support bison or to support elk? Uh, I mean, 
where do you where do you see that part that piece of the puzzle coming back into play in these recovering states these recovering prairie states and and by where is the next step you mean the next step is those megafauna those larger animals coming back right right yeah. when do we when do we get to that point i mean it's it's really tough and i think there's two parts of that that i know enough about to talk about um one is you know those animals need a certain amount of habitat and so mm-hmm. you're limited by the amount of habitat things like elk are one thing but um you know something like a prairie chicken for example is is also in that category right, where yep. it needs a certain yep. amount of habitat it can live with some patchiness of prairie cropland mix trees thrown in there for some of those different species like elk especially um but you have to have a, a sort of a minimum threshold for it to show up at all. And then for it to be successful, you need a different threshold. Right. And so that's one part of the equation is building the habitat. The second part, though, is is getting people used to having those animals around mm-hmm. and and deciding as a group, like, what can we put up with here? Mm-hmm. Um, for whatever reason, we put up with a lot of deer damage from white-tailed deer on croplands. Uh, yeah road collisions, uh, gardens, all these sorts of things. And we've sort of, we've sort of made a decision over time that there's a certain level of that that we'll put up with. Right. And a lot, I think hunting seasons, a lot of times are based on that. Right. Right. Yep. Like the population is doing fine, but we need to keep it down to a certain level where we don't have too much of the negatives, but keep it high enough that there's still enough out there for hunters to have something to, to look at and see. Right. Right. And, I think that's an interesting way to think about it because like with elk or mountain lions or I mean, even, even things like coyotes, right? Mm -hmm. There's, there are these societal decisions that need to be made about what do we want to put up with in return for having those animals in the landscape. And I don't think we've done a good job of, of putting all the information out there in one place for those decisions to be made. Because we're not talking very effectively a lot of times about what are the benefits of things like elk and coyotes and yeah, even even true. wolves and mountain lions in some locations, right? What are the benefits of it versus what are the perceived costs? And then where do we meet on this? How do we mm-hmm. how do we figure out what we want? Because there's not an easy answer. There's not a right answer to that. Right. Um, but it takes the kind of it takes a kind of discourse that we don't tend to be good at yeah. uh, for a lot of different reasons. And for a lot of ways, we just don't know the answers. Like we don't have enough information to even have the discussion in an informed way because yeah. we don't know what those animals need. We don't understand what they We don't. I mean, what do elk in Iowa and Nebraska mean ecologically? We don't know. It's yeah. been so long since yeah. they were here in relevant numbers that it's yeah. hard to judge that. But we were talking about those tree problems earlier. You know, species like elk and pronghorn in some places, they were important pieces of what helped suppress tree encroachment. Yeah. Yep. So there's a service being provided there that we don't really know how to measure so that we can make a decision about how many and where we want to have animals like that. So I don't know that's a very good take, but that's the take I have on it. Yeah, yeah it's just fun to it's just fun to consider and I don't know, get that conversation opened up a little bit because I imagine like like 120 acres and more if you can if you can provide 120 acres of CRP 
the government coming in and saying, hey, we'll actually extend it to a 20-year contract mm-hmm. and we'll pay for a fence around your land. <laughs> but we're going to put some buffalo on here, <laughs> you know, and just sustain it. I don't, you know, I, I don't, there are many practicals that where that wouldn't make sense, but something like that where it could make sense for people, I think would be really cool. Yeah. You know, you brought up the coyote again, and this is kind of unrelated, but did you guys know that one of the biggest letdowns in, um, like wildlife naming is the name coyote instead of prairie wolf. Uh, I believe Lewis and Clark, when they first encountered the coyote, which I think it comes from an Aztec. You can fact check me on that too. Uh, an Aztec word to, uh, for how they named, uh, coyotes. But, um, the Lewis and Clark expedition named them prairie wolves and just, man, that would have been like great mascot for, uh, you know, high schools and colleges and stuff Mm. like that. But Aztec word for trickster. So, which, which is true because apparently coyotes will like lure dogs. They'll like one or two of them will kind of bait a dog. They know they can't take it. And they'll lure them into like a pack of eight or nine of them and then attack these dogs. And, uh, they're that's smart. Wily, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's but, uh, funny. I, I see what no, you're saying. No, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fun to consider, you know, the mammal, the, the large mammal presence that yeah. made um, made prairies so spectacular. You know, it's just kind of the icing on the cake. And uh, I think we've probably all, have, if you have an imagination at, at, at all, you kind of can almost picture yourself being one of those first settlers who uh, crossed the the Mississippi or in, in Chris's case, the Missouri as well. And, uh, you're just standing there and you're just looking at that sea of grass. And then, uh, you continue your journey and you're coming across these bugling elk and these, these, uh, wallowing bison and these just enormous herds and, and, uh, and not sure if you're going to wake up the next right, morning. Right. Just <laughs> crazy. What, the stuff they, what want. a spectacular thing it, it must've been. And, and I think sometimes two people can look at the prairie states and think, you know, oh, flyover state, boring. And but when you when you see all those puzzle pieces put back together, you you don't really see anything like it anywhere else. I mean, it's it's almost like our version of of Serengeti, you know, where uh, you have these vast savanna uh, biomes that are populated by these. You know, these animals that almost seem made up. And, uh, man, they were here at one point, and how cool it would be uh, to see them back someday. Yeah. yeah. Now, I, I would be remiss as a macro photographer not not to mention here that I agree with all of that, but also the prairies we have, even in small pieces, have an astonishing array of diversity in them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it's worth looking at, right? But it's not yep. the things that you eat. When we grow up in school, we don't learn about uh, how cool, you know, some of these really small animals are because yeah. people just don't know much about them. And then that gets continued. But one of the things that, that I've learned over time and that I try to tell other people is just go out into those little prairies. I mean, even, even like a backyard flower garden, right? Mm-hmm. If you sit there and actually look, it's it's just astonishing to see how many things are there. And so we may be missing some of those big pieces, but... And those, some of those big pieces played important roles, but it doesn't mean that what we have left minus those big pieces isn't valuable. Yeah, and I do think that's really also. important, especially in a place like Iowa or eastern Nebraska where that's what we have are these little tiny fragmented pieces. There's still a lot yeah. 
in there and they those you know they've survived for a long time in their current yeah. state yeah, so well we still so. have a really good chance of keeping them around yeah the diversity of uh the micro diversity oh, is that what you would call it uh, i think diversity is probably just diversity enough, but, but ah. it's it's uh you know, it kind of takes us full circle here when we were talking at the very beginning of being able to identify all these critters. That's what makes it so challenging is because a prairie ecosystem is so diverse. There's mm-hmm. so much life. Uh, yeah. You know, the the, the total uh, biomass, you know, for for just a, a you know, a, a one-acre piece of prairie, a remnant prairie is just outstanding. And, uh, you know, it's... It's fun to consider all the all the players and try and identify who they all are and make even new de- discoveries as well. A little fun fact. If you type in diversity of prairie, the first thing to come up is your website, <laughs> prairieecologist.com, plant diversity. <laughs> that is prairie awesome. Prairie ecologist. It, it, so while we're on it, and, and we'll need to wrap up here yep. in a moment, but while we're here, what, what are if people want to connect with you or see what you've written or see the beautiful pictures you've taken how would they do that well prairieecologist.com for sure is the the blog that i write um it is very good people highly recommend i've spent a lot of time on that website well i appreciate that yeah you can subscribe to it but you can also use it as a resource like i use it as a resource to remember things (laughs) and just go to the search topic and you know type in something you're trying to see if see if i've written about it and i can link it to other things um I'm also on Instagram, so uh, at Prairie Ecologist on Instagram, if you're an Instagram person. Uh, I still haven't figured out, this is not a good advertisement, but I feel like I still haven't figured out Instagram in terms of how I want to use it, because I want it to be like the blog, mm-hmm. where I have these thoughtful discussions, and that sure. it's not the best platform for it, but I still do it. So there's a lot of photography there, but I also throw in a lot of natural history facts and some prairie management stuff in there, because I can't. Yeah. Um, so those are probably the two best ways. And then you're welcome to contact me. Um, you know, if you're looking for information, I can either tell you something I know or pass you on to somebody else. Yeah. yeah. When I when I reach out to you, I, w- I was thinking there is no way that this guy, as important and as uh, much of an expert as he is, is going to be responding. But I just figured I'd shoot my shot. And you, you responded. You were so kind about it. And I really appreciate it. That was not a small deal to us. So oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. No, this is this is this kind of thing is fun and and like I said at the beginning, I mean, prairies are an under underdog that we're yeah. trying to get people to think about differently. And so this is a really important part of what I do, not just for my job, but just because I think it's important is, you know, talking to people about how cool prairies are and and uh any chance I get, I'll I'll take it usually. Okay, before you go, one last question. I am very curious, and this is so random. I don't know if you know anything about crickets, but I hear a lot of conflicting things, and I've heard that if you slow them down, they sound like a choir, but I tried to do it the other day, and they didn't sound like a choir, and I'm wondering if you know if that's true or not. I have never heard that. (laughs) It can't be true. If you don't know it, then it can't be true. (laughs) Okay, I refer you to our earlier conversation about how much I don't know, especially about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man well if if you find out you let us know okay and if anyone listening to this if you guys find out you let us know and you can do that by hanging out in your backyard as we talked about because conservation happens one yard at a time 